You can turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 20. We'll begin with verse 18. Pray together before we read. Our God, we thank you that indeed to us a son has been born. We thank you, Lord, that the child has been given. The one through whom you have worked wonders on our behalf. We thank you, O Lord, that your wonders did not end thousands of years ago as you parted the Red Sea waters or as you brought down manna from heaven. But we thank you, Lord, that your wonders have taken place in our lives, that you have broken our hearts, that you have humbled us before you. O Lord, we praise your name for you are worthy of all of the adoration and the love that we can give to you for what you have done for us in Jesus Christ. O Lord, we praise your name for giving us the gifts that we do not deserve, the gift of sorrow for our sins, and the gift of faith in Jesus Christ. We thank you, O Lord, that we are worthy in him and that we are your people forever. O Lord, we pray that you would help us again to think of your love and to think of the love that we must have for others. We pray, Father, that you would help us again to deal with these principles that you have set down in your word. Help us, O Lord, to not just sit here and soak, but help us, Lord, to commit ourselves to going away from this place with new obedience and new faithfulness to those goals that you have set before us. We ask your blessing tonight through your word and your spirit. For Christ's sake, amen. Acts chapter 20, verse 18. When the elders arrived, he said to them, You know how I lived the whole time I was with you from the first day I came into the province of Asia. I served the Lord with great humility and with tears, although I was severely tested by the plots of the Jews. You know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly and from house to house. I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. Verse 24. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me if only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. 
verse 27. For I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. My family and I have just come back from two weeks of vacation. Actually, we haven't even been home yet. And on our way north, we stopped in Eureka, California, on the coast about a week and a half ago. And when we were there, we went to a very impressive guided tour of the history of logging redwood trees in California. The guide told us the story of how the loggers came west from the eastern parts of the United States. And when they arrived, they had to come up with all new techniques for cutting down the huge redwood trees, which were often 12 feet sometimes more in diameter. It was a common practice of these loggers to saw through the tree at the thinnest part close to the ground where the trunk ended and then the main shaft went up. They would saw it on the thinnest part there at the top of the trunk. Uh, With a normal tree, that place is about three or four feet at the most above the ground. However, with a redwood tree, it's 10 or 12 feet or even more off of the ground where you must do your sawing. So one of the techniques they came up with was to put a notch around the outside of the tree and to put in posts sticking out. And then they would uh, lay a board on top of it to make kind of a uh, primitive scaffolding. That uh, board that they laid across it was usually a very narrow board and therefore um, When the men stood on it, even though they had boots with nails in the bottom of them to give them a good grip and keep them from falling off, they still could not move around. So they faced each other and they chopped away with their axes. You see, one of the cardinal rules is that you always face each other uh, when you're chopping with your axes because uh, uh, you can never trust anybody completely when you turn your back. And uh, since they had to maintain this position of facing each other, once they got up on the top, they always had to chop in the same direction. They couldn't say, okay, let's trade places and I'll chop this way and you can chop that way. They could not trade places. Uh, The only problem was that uh, the arm, which put all of the muscle into the swing, got a lot more exercise than the arm which just guided the axe into the tree. And as a result, the redwood loggers always had one gigantic muscular arm, while the other arm was much smaller and far more normal. And by looking at each of the redwood loggers, you could tell which way he usually swung on the scaffold simply by looking at which of his arms was the biggest. They had left-handed swingers and right-handed swingers. Now, I was very tempted as we began to look, as we begin to look tonight at the goals of the church, to make love the first goal of a successful church. 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 13, verses 1 to 3, as most of you probably know, exalts love as the greatest virtue which the Corinthian Christians were being challenged by Paul to possess. 
He says, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames, but have not love, I gain nothing. This and other verses in the New Testament has caused Vernon Grounds to say, quote, God's criteria for success are not pulpit eloquence, communication skill, penetrating insight, remarkable gifts, encyclopedic knowledge, mountain-moving faith. His criterion for success is Christ-like love. Now, I do want to talk quite a bit about love tonight. I think it's obvious that church success should have love for God and love for his people and love for the world at the top of its list. Jesus himself used love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself as his summary of the Ten Commandments, which in turn are a summary of the law of God. The law of God, what is that? Well, it is simply God's standards. It is God's goals that we are to aim at and to achieve in our behavior. But you see, the reason I didn't make love uh, the, first, uh, the first goal of the church, the successful church, is that I did not want to isolate love from the rest of the gospel. What instead I wanted to do was to impress upon you the need to preach the whole gospel. As the Apostle Paul put it in the passage that I read to you at the beginning from Acts chapter 20, I did not hesitate to preach to you the whole counsel, or as the NIV puts it, the whole will of God. And so what I've decided to do tonight is to group my thoughts under the broader topic of wholeness, wholeness. Uh, the successful church uh, is a whole church. Now, as was the case with several other uh, ideas of mine, it seems that the points that I decided to emphasize tonight in this topic are not exactly new with me. As a matter of fact, I discovered after I'd worked on this that Will Metzger has written an excellent book on evangelism called Tell the Truth, and uh, his subtitle includes, almost word for word, my three main points for tonight. So I guess that proves there is indeed nothing new under the sun. But nonetheless, I want to give you those points. I think uh, they're well worth considering. The successful church is a whole church. The successful church is a church where the whole word is preached to the whole world by whole people. And I hope that all of you can stay with me through the whole thing. <laughs> First of all, uh, Paul has told us by his own example that it is the whole word, it is the whole word that we must preach. About a month ago, I was uh, in a gas station buying gas in National City and it was a particularly warm day, which is unusual in San Diego. 
And the attendant uh, was very open. He immediately began uh, laying on me curse-laden complaints about the heat. And uh, I listened to him for a few moments. And then I said to him, I said, well, you know, it could be worse. You could be in Los Angeles. <laughs> and detecting the positive, optimistic tone in my voice, uh, he decided that I was a person that he ought to talk to. He asked me several questions, including, does God really answer our prayers? He found out I was a minister. And uh, after he found out I was a minister, he said, boy, you know, that must be a pretty easy job. <laughs> I said, oh, yes, uh, it's the easiest job in the world to have to spend most of your time being concerned about the problems of 150 sinners like yourself. <laughs> I said, no, it, it's not easy. As a matter of fact, I'd never dream of doing it. I'd never dream of what we might say in some sense. I'd never dream of being a sin expert if I didn't have a source of supernatural answers and a supernatural source of strength in my work. What is it that gives us success in our ministry? What is it that gives us success in our ministry? Again, I have an interesting little cartoon here for you. It's the two pastors in the church office, and they're counting the money from the morning offering. And he's looking at his sermon notes, and he says, Let's go over my sermon again. Surely I must have said something. <laughs> surely, surely I must have said something. I think that we can hear from the words of Paul that it's not what we say that brings results. Rather, it is what God has said. It is the word of God which describes to us the goals we must strive for. It is the word of God which convicts and transforms. There are two very tragic stories in the Gospel of Luke, chapters 8 and 9. They are true accounts of two men whose lives were controlled by Satan and so controlled by his evil spirits, his demons, that these men were actually called demoniacs, demon-possessed men. Let's listen to one of the stories, Luke 8, 26. They sailed to the region of the Gerasenes, which is across the lake from Galilee. When Jesus stepped ashore, he was met by a demon-possessed man from the town. For a long time, this man had not worn clothes or lived in a house, but had lived in the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell at his feet, shouting at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, don't torture me. For Jesus had commanded the evil spirit to come out of the man. Many times it had seized him, and though he was chained hand and foot and kept under guard, he had broken his chains and had been driven by the demon into solitary places. Jesus asked him, What is your name? 
legion, he replied, because many demons had gone into him. And they begged him repeatedly not to order them to go into the abyss. A large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. The demons begged Jesus to let them go into them, and he gave them permission. When the demons came out of the man, they went into the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and was drowned. When those tending the pigs saw what had happened, they ran off and reported this in the town and countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they found the man from whom the demons had gone out, sitting at Jesus' feet, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people how the demon-possessed man had been cured. Then all the people of the region of the Gerasenes asked Jesus to leave them because they were overcome with fear. So he got into the boat and left. The man from whom the demons had gone out begged to go with him. But Jesus sent him away, saying, Return home and tell how much God has done for you. So the man went away and told all over town how much Jesus had done for him. Now what is it that Jesus is trying to tell us by including examples of demon-possessed people in the New Testament? Jesus is telling us simply what he tells us throughout the book of Luke and the other Gospels. He is telling us how it is that the kingdom of God comes. He is telling us that the kingdom of God comes, the power of the kingdom comes, when the gospel of the kingdom, the gospel of Jesus Christ, is preached. When the word goes forth and is believed and lived and when men no longer follow Satan's directions, Satan's goals, when they no longer blindly live his standards and they begin to think God's thoughts instead of the devil's. What is it in the parable of the sower earlier in Luke that we are told that the devil comes and takes away so people may not believe and be saved? Luke 8, 12, it is the seed of the word of God. What was it that frustrated the three temptations of Jesus at the very beginning of Christ's ministry when he was tempted by Satan in the wilderness, it was the quotation by Jesus of the word of God. In the middle of preaching his last public sermon to some Gentiles in John chapter 12, Jesus said, Now judgment is upon this world. Now the ruler of this world shall be cast out. When is the ruler of this world, the prince of darkness, and his standards, his goals, cast out. When the words of God, when the words of Jesus Christ are spoken and believed by men. Jesus sends out 70 missionaries two by two in Luke chapter 10 and they return with great joy after preaching the word in many towns and cities. They report to Jesus about how men have believed and what does Jesus say in Luke chapter 10 verse 18? As a result of the preaching, I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Now, as most of you know, Jesus did many miracles as he walked this earth. He healed the sick, he raised the dead, he cast out demons. But Jesus never lets us forget for a moment that his kingdom does not come through miracles. The kingdom of Jesus Christ comes through preaching the good news of salvation to poor sinners. It is the word, it is the word that we must preach, first of all. 
So this is the weapon of the king, the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the, the tool, that, this is the weapon that changes lives. But it's not only the word that we must preach. As Paul has told us, more importantly, it is the whole word that we must preach. Now, those of us in the Reformed tradition pride ourselves on the way in which we preach a complete gospel. We give God the glory that is due to him by magnifying his sovereign grace. And when we talk about preaching the whole counsel of God, using that phrase, as Paul uses that phrase, what we usually mean by that is that we are a church that does not suppress these glorious doctrines of grace, often summarized as the five points of Calvinism. But let us ask ourselves the question, do we really preach the whole counsel of God? Or do we only emphasize that portion of God's counsel which the other churches are ignoring or denying? Charles Spurgeon points out to us this very tendency and problem in a sermon that he preached in 1861. Spurgeon said this. In Australia, I have heard that the only change for the backwoodsman is to have one day damper tea and bread, the next day bread, damper, and tea, and the next day tea, bread, and damper. The only variety some ministers give is one Sunday to have depravity, election, and perseverance, and the next Sunday, election, perseverance, and depravity. There are many strings to the harp of the gospel. There are some brethren who are so rightly charmed with five of the strings, which certainly have very rich music in them, that they never meddle with any of the other strings. The cobwebs hang on the rest, while these five are pretty well worn out. It's always pretty much the same thing from the 1st of January to the last of December. Their organ has very few keys, and upon these they may make a very blessed variety, but I think not a very extensive one. Any man who preaches Christ will ensure variety in his preaching. You see, the problem is that we might become like those redwood loggers in days of old. The problem is for us to become unbalanced in our doctrinal or our preaching muscle, in our presentation of the word of God. Sometimes in our zeal to protect the respect of people for the holiness, and the justice and the sovereignty of God, sometimes in our zeal we have neglected and obscured other legitimate aspects of God's personality, such as his love, his compassion, his friendship, his generosity, and his mercy. You know, I'm afraid that sometimes we even go so far as to neglect portions of the word of God because we're afraid 
of the way in which they have often been misused. And we don't want to be identified with those errors. We don't want to be identified with a man-centered partial gospel. And so maybe we're afraid to even use tests like, for God so loved the world. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Come, whoever is thirsty, let him come. Whoever wishes, let him take the free gift of the water of life. God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. But what does Paul say? Paul says, preach the whole counsel of God. Preach, yes, the sovereignty of God and the holiness of God. Preach the need for repentance and discipleship but also preach the compassion and the love of Jesus Christ, who is the friend for sinners, because it is a part of the whole counsel of God. As Jack Miller has said in a book that he has written recently, God has called his church to be a welcoming church, to stand as his representatives on earth and welcome everyone to his heavenly banquet. He wants the love and compassion of the gospel to be heard from our lips. If we find ourselves unable to offer that welcome, to speak that message of love, to seek out those who need it, God wants us to realize something is wrong. Now it's obvious, even as I read that quotation, that I've moved here from talking about the whole gospel as containing the message of God's love to the practice of God's love in our midst. You see, we must not only preach of a God who is filled with love and mercy and compassion, we must also love, as well as being concerned with our growth in holiness. As Robert Raines has said in his book on the successful church, Biblically speaking, a successful congregation is one which evokes in its people a compassion for suffering humanity and the courage to do something about it. It is a congregation in which the spirit is alive, opening the eyes of the heart to see and feel the hurt of humanity. It is a congregation that undertakes the same liberating mission that was the core of Jesus' life work. Luke tells the story in chapter 7 of his gospel, verse 36 and following, of how the feet of Jesus were anointed by the tears as well as the perfume of a woman who was a prostitute before her life was changed by the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. And in order to explain the behavior of this woman, Jesus tells Simon the Pharisee, whose house he was having dinner at, in order to explain what this woman was doing, Jesus tells what is often called the parable of the two debtors. Once upon a time, there were two men who were in, in debt to a loan agent. 
One of the men owed the loan agent $20,000, and the other one owed him about $2,000. But neither of them could pay their debts. So what did the money lender do? Well, instead of having the two men thrown in jail, he very generously canceled their debt. And Jesus looked straight at Simon the Pharisee and asked him, Now, Simon, which of these two debtors will show the greatest love toward the moneylender? Simon, probably feeling very uncomfortable, says, Well, I suppose the one with the larger debt. Jesus said, You're right. And that is why this woman loves me so much. She has been forgiven much. Verse 47, But he who has been forgiven little, loves little. You see, you notice that when it comes to talking about those who are saved, when it comes to talking about those whose sins have been forgiven, the question is not which of them will love God. The question, according to verse 42 of that chapter, is which of them will love him more? You see, we must bring the whole word to the whole world. We must do something about God's concern for the needs of men. We, who are the loved of God, must love. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love. Anyone who does not love remains in death. So you see, there is no true experience of salvation where love is absent. Because as Paul says in Galatians 5-6, Christian faith works itself out in love. And what is it that our sin-ravaged, broken, empty society needs out there more than the love of God and the love of his people? And what do you think they feel that they need? Well, Madison Avenue knows what people feel that they need. Just listen to the slogan that the advertisers have come up with in order to sell their products. Just listen to the slogans that they have come up with, which they believe identify with America's deepest felt needs. Howard Johnson's Loves You. Label of Love, Stroh's Beer. Love for Sale, Amaretto di Serrano. You have a friend at Chase Manhattan. Anne L. Tracy always shops with a friend, Bank Americard. Have breakfast with a friend, McDonald's. Weight Watchers, if you need a friend. Since we are neighbors, let's be friends, Safeway. When you need a friend, 24 hours a day, WNEW-FM. And two liquor advertisements. It's time we made friends. I can help you make friends. Isn't it interesting that the very thing that God commands us to do 
is the very thing that people feel they need the most. Is love an obvious mark in our service to God as a church? Well, let's start with Jerusalem. Is there love in our churches? Is there love in our churches? Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 7 to 10, The end of all things is near. Therefore, be clear-minded and self-controlled so that you can pray. Above all, love each other deeply, because love covers over a multitude of sins. And then he talks about how to express that love. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each one should use whatever gift he has received to serve others. Above all, love each other deeply. You know, as I read through the letters of Peter recently, I couldn't help but be struck by how this theme runs through both of his letters. 1 Peter 1.22 says, Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for your brothers, love one another deeply from the heart. 1 Peter 3, verse 8. Finally, all of you live in harmony with one another. Be sympathetic. Love as brothers. Do we deeply love one another? as brothers and sisters in Christ. How do we express our love to one another as brothers and sisters? Romans uh, chapter 14, the first three verses, is talking about the weak brother and the strong brother. Accept him whose faith is weak without passing judgment on disputable matters one man's faith allows him to eat everything, but another man whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. The man who eats everything must not look down on him who does not, and the man who does not eat everything must not condemn the man who does, for God has accepted him. God tells us that we love our fellow Christians by accepting them. Paul spoke here about the differences in eating habits. Later on in the chapter, he talks about their different practice in terms of observing the Old Testament Jewish feasts. And what does Paul say that we must do in the church today with those differences between us, like differences in personality, differences in things that we would like to emphasize in the life of the church, differences in age, Differences in style of ministry. Differences in knowledge. What shall we do with differences in race? Differences in our cultural background. Differences in the way that we think our children ought to be disciplined. Differences in the ways that we specifically keep the Sabbath day holy. What shall we do with all of those differences? Paul says we must accept them and not insist that everyone conform to all of our differences in order for us to judge them as right. Paul says we must respect each other as people, 
we must respect each other's opinions and not reject people simply because we think they're old-fashioned or reject somebody because we think that they're a young whippersnapper who's only been in the church for five or six years or maybe even only for five or six months. We must accept them as people who have been accepted by the Lord, says Paul. And we must accept them not only in our hearts, but as Peter was emphasizing there, we must accept them into our homes. I'm not going to give you a uh, message on hospitality. But I think that um, I think that one of the reasons that we do not show more hospitality in the Church of Jesus Christ is because we are not living for the Lord's goals. We are living instead for what other people might think of us. We are wondering what they will think of our house which is not perfectly in order. We are ashamed perhaps because we can't put on the fancy spread that we'd like to set before them. We don't show more hospitality more often because we are living for the opinions of men instead of for the goals of God. And what is God's goal? God's goal is pursue hospitality. Deeply love one another from the heart. Secondly, love for our brothers demands that we guard the unity that has been given to all of us by the Holy Spirit by keeping from gossip and slander. You know, many people in the world associate gossip with the church. And you know, there are churches that are just riddled with that poison. It's poison. Even between churches, we hear, did you hear what's happening over at such and such a church? You see, we must not make and we must not accept comments which tear down. That's what Paul said. If it cannot build up, then do not say it. And if you need to get something straightened out, or if you have a question, go to the source, go to the person. You see, why is it that in the Church of Jesus Christ, we don't really believe that the rules that God has set down in his word really work? Why do we take a statement like, don't gossip and don't slander and say, well, that's an ideal that we can't attain until we get to heaven. After all, we're only human. What is it that we are doing that is different from the world if we do the very same things that they do? We are supposed to be a healing community, a peculiar community of people who have been changed by the grace of God. We must not make or accept comments which tear down. In love, we must be a people that says we're sorry when we sin against another. Francis Schaeffer, in his book, The Mark of the Christian, that's a part of his book, um, he put that at the top. He says, the very first thing that Christians must do in loving one another is to say, I'm sorry. Instead of saying, well, they'll get over it. And then the second thing that we must do in showing love to our brothers and sisters is to say, I forgive you. And I won't let it divide us. I won't hold it against you. 
love for our brothers also means bearing his burdens. You know, it means that, again, we do not accept the individualistic ships passing in the night culture that's all around us. It means that we take time with each other to find out where we're hurting as well as where we're rejoicing. You know, there are people sitting in our pews who haven't been listened to for years. Maybe they're there because of their love for the Lord. They're not there because of our love to them. There are teenagers who really are trying to live for the Lord, but who aren't getting a word of encouragement from their elders. There are parents who aren't getting any advice from the older people in the congregation. And there are younger parents who aren't willing to accept the advice of older Christians who have already gone through parenting. There are elders and deacons and pastors who do not get prayer support from the people that they minister to. There are single people. There are widows who are never invited into the homes of families to share their life, even for a brief while. Ralph Winter has said, The glory of the church, even a local church, is that it patiently endeavors to foster balanced, redemptive community across the whole span of ages, the differences in sex, even differences in station in life. And what about our sister churches? One of the things which has saddened me a lot is the ignorance that we have of one another as churches. Churches in the same city don't know what's going on across town. Not only do we not share our lives with each other very much, we don't pray for each other very much, and we don't minister to each other very much. We don't encourage the church which is discouraged. We don't give them advice as to things that have been working for us. See, what is this mentality that, that we have to let each other do their own thing? That's not what the Bible says. That's not what Presbyterianism says. The loving church is a church where brothers bear each other's burdens. Love for our brothers will also involve us in discipline. You know, when I came to the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, I heard all about how church discipline is one of the marks of the true church of Jesus Christ. But guess what? If discipline is one of the marks of the true church of Jesus Christ, then perhaps some of us are not as true churches as we think we are. No, discipline is in very sad shape in our churches. Maybe it's because we're a small church again and we think we need to keep everybody we can get. But the sad truth is that there is very little biblical confrontation with open and persistent disobedience to God. We don't perform biblical discipline, we perform radical surgery after they haven't been there for uh, three or four years. We just axe them instead of taking care of the cancer when it starts. 
when it can still be cured. You see, love means that we maintain in the church an atmosphere of open rebuke and confrontation. When discipline is carried out with a spirit of gentleness and firmness, God will bless us. We will be a truly loving community. Fifthly, love in the church means bearing with one another in patience. We're sinners, right? So we should expect people to sin. We should expect people to blow it once in a while, to say something thoughtless, or to do something out of a lack of sensitivity, to say the wrong thing, to do the wrong thing. We should expect people to do that. But you see, our love for one another should enable us to cover over those minor mistakes. Knowing that this brother or sister will realize that they've made a mistake and things will be different. You see, we need to get rid of this resentfulness and the oversensitivity that we have in the church so that we will take some little thing and carry it around with us for the next ten years and allow it to color our relationships with other people. We must bear with one another in love. Is there love in your church? How about this question? Is there love toward those who visit your church? Is there love toward those who visit your church? In the quote that I mentioned earlier from Jack Miller, he reminds us that we are to be a welcoming church. From the smiling greeters at the door to the friendliness of the elders to the welcome in our bulletin to the letter of greeting that the pastor sends out the week after their visit, we must be saying to them, come. The feast has been spread by Jesus Christ. There is a table in the desert at which you can feed and be filled. We want to share with you our rest, our joy, our peace with God. We want to share with you the resources of Jesus Christ. You see, does your church say to the visitor to your church what Jesus Christ has said to the world? Come! Come, sinners, poor, naked, come and join. This is not a holy club, a perfect thing. This is a hospital where our lives are being transformed by the very same power that is available to you. We want you to share in that power. Lyle Schaller, who has done quite a bit of writing on church planning and has had personal experience in over 40 years of work, has come up with a collection of invisible signs. And I wanted to get this on a transparency, but I didn't. It looks like that. I'm going to read it to you. <laughs> invisible signs. Signs which we never really erect outside of our church in terms of getting the wood together and nailing it all together and painting it up and writing the words on it. But signs which nonetheless are very real and very unloving 
and very inconsiderate of visitors. Signs like this. If you were born between 1915 and 1935, have an above average competence in verbal skills, and prefer the traditional formal worship service, you will feel at home here. Ladies, if you wear pantsuits to worship, you will feel out of place. Mature single adults, especially older bachelors, probably will not feel at home here. This is a family church. Despite what it says in Luke 14:13, you can tell by the steps and the arrangement of the facilities that we are not expecting the lame, the maimed, the elderly, or the arthritic. If you need to go to the restroom, ask someone for directions. Guess which door is the proper one to use when entering this building for the first time. We gather here every Sunday morning to worship God, to hear the proclamation of the word and for the administration of the sacraments. Guess when we gather. If you really need to find the pastor, you should be willing to spend some time looking for his office. Where should you park? That's your problem. <laughs> what do the invisible signs at your church say? One of my concerns for visitors to Bayview Church is that we do indeed put up some very good signs. We put up some very friendly and some very inviting signs for visitors. But then we don't get past the smile and the handshake in the sanctuary into the deeper love which is required to fully incorporate people into the life of the Church of Jesus Christ. There are generally two conditions uh, which have been set down to incorporate people into the Church. First of all, they need friends, and secondly, they need work to do. So I just want to emphasize that first one, they need friends. They need to establish relationships on some level with a significant number of people in the church. A recent article in Church Growth America magazine confirms the need for establishing relationships as you can see by the underlining. Friendship with others in the church is one of the most important keys in binding members to each other and to the church. People's participation level in church activities is directly related to the existence of or lack of relationships. There was a direct positive correlation between the number of best friends reported in church and Sunday school and the subject's own attendance and participation. When the new convert quickly formed a number of personal relationships with members of the congregation, they were more likely to become active and involved. The converts who stayed had developed an average of over seven new friends in the church. Those who dropped out could identify an average of less than two. Additional evidence shows importance of the friendliness and warmth of church members to outsiders. The question of those who dropped out of the church, first of all, they were asked, why did you drop out? 
The answer was, we did not feel part of the group. The second question, what would most influence your choice of a new church home? Friendliness of the people. We must have a strategy whereby we encourage a quicker and a broader base of love relationships in our church fellowships. And uh, I was going to say something about that, but I don't have time, so I'll just go on. Uh, the third point that I want to mention here is that we must not only show love in our churches, we must not only show love to our visitors, but we must show love to our community. How do we love our community? One of the best things going for traveling families is Denny's Restaurant. Uh, you see, Denny's realize that most restaurants put up with families with children, and they rejoice when the children and their parents go out the door. But you see, Denny's came up with an answer to fit the needs of those families with children. They made up puppets for the kids to play with. They gave crackers for the kids to chew on to keep them quiet. They gave them punch-out toys, all of them designed to keep the children occupied while the food is being prepared. And then they designed a menu just for kids. Cheap, inexpensive food with the kinds of things kids like. Hamburgers without buns, since kids don't like the buns. Peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. Waffles with things like whipped cream on top of them. You see, kids love Denny's and their parents love Denny's as well. Now, why is it that the church cannot show the same flexibility in ministering to the needs of the people that we're supposed to be serving? You see, so often our approach in outreach, outreach so-called, is to put an ad in the paper or the phone book which says, We are a church which adheres to the Westminster Confession of Faith. If you want what we've got, come and get it. If you agree with us, you're welcome. Would it not be a more significant outreach to discern the makeup and the felt needs of our community and then to establish ministries designed to help with those needs? Uh, one black church in Philadelphia is about to purchase Connie Mack Stadium in North Philadelphia, where the Phillies played for many years. They intend to remodel the stadium not only into your usual church facilities, but also to include a thrift store, a garage, a food co-op, and other points of contact with the felt needs of their community. St. Stephen's Church of God in Christ in San Diego, with over a thousand members, is a prime example of the same thing. They touched their community where they hurt, and as a result, over 90% of the members of that church come from a two-mile radius to the church. You see, one of our laments in the OPC is that we don't have neighborhood churches anymore. We've got people that have to drive a hundred miles round trip to get to our services. You see, maybe we need to ask ourselves whether we are indeed reaching our neighborhood. Maybe we ought to ask ourselves, are we really, do we really know the people out there? Do we know if they're young or they're old? Do we, do we know if they're children? Do we know if they have children? Do we know if they're transient families? Do we know what their occupation is so we know what times they're available generally during the day? We don't know our neighborhoods. 
And we don't go to people where they're at. We expect them to come to us because we've got the truth. And because we expect them to come to us, they usually don't come at all. Again, I had some suggestions about how to uh, get to know your community. Um, But I'll just say finally, the way that we have to show love to our community is by accepting all comers with equal friendliness. One of the differences between Old Testament Judaism and New Testament Christianity is that Christianity is Catholic. It is bigger than any nation. It is bigger than any culture, and we must reflect that in our churches. I've been encouraged to see our church reflecting more of the community. Japanese, Hispanics, Chinese, Laotians. We must welcome all comers whether they're our kind of people or not, for God welcomes all comers. And he does not want us to deny in our practice what Jesus Christ has come to do to break down the walls which divide men. We must love in our churches. We must love our visitors. We must love our communities. We must give the whole counsel of God to the whole world. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you again that we can talk about loving others because you have loved us. We thank you, Lord, that you have touched our lives with the redeeming work of Jesus Christ. Oh, Lord, how great is the love that you have lavished upon us, that we, that we should be called the children of God. Oh, Lord, Help us to rejoice in the knowledge of that reality and help our rejoicing to spill over so that it touches the lives of those who are unloved around us, those who are so desperately in need of the message of salvation, of how they can be forgiven of their sins as well. Oh Lord, we thank you for your love. Help us to love. For Jesus' sake and your glory. Amen.